You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Michael Brady, who's a retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel and former career intelligence officer. He's performed a wide variety of tactical and strategic intelligence functions, including long-range surveillance, interrogation, intelligence analysis, and collections management. His areas of expertise and research include threats to the homeland, intelligence collection systems and programs, intelligence analysis, and intelligence support to national policymaking. He's also a former contributor to the Asia Times, where he wrote on intelligence and security issues in the region. Michael currently teaches graduate and undergraduate courses at the Citadel as a faculty member in their Department of Intelligence and Security Studies. He is also a novelist, and his latest book, Into the Shadows Assassination Corps, is out now. So welcome, Michael. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Vince, thanks so much for having me. It's an honor to be with you. So you, you spent a career in intelligence. Um, you know, for a lot of people, when uh, someone who decided to do that for a big part of their life, mm-hmm. I want to ask the question, what drove you in this direction? What made you decide to do a career in intelligence? Because a lot of people, when they're going into the military, intelligence for, you know, they want to be infantry or the tankers or special forces. Intel, especially not to date you, Especially when you joined the army, right. it didn't necessarily have the same kind of mystique and and prestige that it does mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. Certainly, going back to early nineteen mm-hmm. nineties. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think there were two things that drove me. I mean, I think the first was the Hunt for Red October by Tom Clancy. You know, I was a teenager at the time. You know, I have to be honest. I've, I've said this before. Uh, when I read that, I said, oh, that would be really cool if I would became an intelligence officer and I was able to dig up things and figure out what the adversary was doing, what is our enemy doing. And I think the second thing that really drove me was, uh, you know, my, my uh, need. Um, I was compelled to serve, you know, serve the country. And, um, you know, we had the Russian horde is what I, you know, used to call it. And, uh, you know, I wanted to be stationed in Germany and, and do the full to gap scenario. And so it was, it was those two factors that really over a period of a few years led me to to go into the Citadel, become an intelligence officer, um, and do 20 years. 
And you got there just in time not to care about the food gaps in your <laughs> anymore. You, I think you, you graduated in 1990, which is a, a, a quite exciting time to be joining the profession. I mean, this is yeah. a time of massive transition yeah. during this. Was it obvious as a young intelligence officer that the world was changing? No. Uh, at least from my perspective, it was not. You know, I was a young lieutenant. Um, you know, my first assignment was with Echo Company, 51st Infantry, long-range surveillance. And so we were hoping to go over in the desert. Uh, I was assigned to 5th Corps. That Corps did not deploy. Um, but, yeah, I think it was a much simpler time um, it, it, back then because you really uh, you had the Russians. But then when we came back from the war with Iraq, you know, after the liberation of Kuwait, I think the Army and the nation found itself wondering what, what is going on right. here. You know, we've got the collapse of the Soviet Union. Things are supposed to be looking rosy, but we've got things like Somalia going on. We've got things like the Balkan conflict and some others. And so I think a lot of us, especially when you're younger, you're focused on a career. You're focused on being the best lieutenant you can be, the best platoon leader you can be. Those strategic issues kind of get lost as a young officer. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was, there was a period of time uh, probably for many, many years where I didn't know where I was going to go. Yeah, I mean, it's a dramatic refocus. You're talking about the full the gap scenario, and then you're all of a sudden in the 90s, you're thinking low-intensity conflict, you're thinking asymmetrical warfare, yeah. peacekeeping operations. Yeah, I mean, and you're thinking Somalia, you know, yeah. you're thinking places like that, um, where the mission is much different than what we use, you know, when we talk about conventional combat. And so uh, it, was a, it was a learning period for the Army. It was a learning period as an intelligence officer. Um, you know, prior to that, I spent much of my training and, and, and reading on the Soviet Union, you know, that, that, but when that went away, I had to figure out, okay, what do I read about now? Is it Africa? Right. Is it the Middle East? Well, Southeast you, you Asia? You don't east. know. You kept going east, though, right? <laughs> right. You went I to did. Asia. I did. Yeah. yeah. I mean, is that, is that, was that a conscious shift of looking at some of the emerging threats in Asia? Did you say that as a, maybe as partially a interests, but also a career choice yeah. to start looking at East Asia? Yeah. Um, you know, I was blessed. Uh, I was able to become a, uh, a strategic intelligence officer um, uh, just before 9-11. Um, and so one of the things that I thought was going to happen prior to 9-11 was the rise of, of Asia, particularly the, the Chinese from an economic and a political and a military perspective. I don't count or consider the, the, uh, the Chinese now a threat. Um, they are a strategic competitor. They are an economic uh, power. They are, they, are, they are rivaling the United States. But back then, I looked at the world, and I thought what was happening was, and it was most likely the rise of China, just because of the population shifts, the demographics, the economics. Um, and so I really wanted to start you know, putting my interest at the strategic level towards that, that region. Well, you, you have that you know, thorn in their eye sitting right off of the Chinese mainland. I mean, I, I read you wrote your classified master's thesis on, Taiwan. on the PRC and Taiwan and yeah. that relationship. How dated is that? Or is that still basically an issue? I mean, you obviously can't talk about it because it is a classified thesis. But yeah. the idea of Taiwan was something I, you know, kind of came of age thinking about was going to be the next flashpoint. Yeah. And yeah. the South China Sea and all the things about the, mm -hmm. you know, denial of the region for us and everything else. That seems to have cooled a little bit, but every so often there'll be some kind of referendum in Taiwan. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and then everyone goes, oh, not again. Yes, and it keeps us guessing, doesn't yeah. it? We don't really know. I mean, it seems like, you know, every few years, you know, the tide shifts just a little bit where it's almost, you know, 50-50 you know, split in terms of what the people of Taiwan want to do. So we'll see. I mean, I think uh, it's certainly a flashpoint like you, like you mentioned. But I think right now the, the, the real concern is the South China Sea, the militarization of the South China Sea and, 
And uh, so we'll see how things progress yeah. in that regard. So that's a, the, the the mantra as well. We'll see. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We'll see. Let's uh, let's hope some 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 calm heads prevail. I mean, you know, the thing is, I think what's important for us is is to really understand what the Chinese are trying to do in the South China Sea. You know, I mean, there's a lot of debate on that. You know, I took some flack about a year or two ago where I where I wrote about what's driving the Chinese into the South China Sea. And if, and if you listen to a lot of national security experts or, or some other folks, they'll say, well, a big part of it is, that, you know, they want to extend their military. You know, they want to do the A2, uh, the, the denial um, mm-hmm. program that they've got in place right now, area denial campaign. And so a lot of preventional thought is that, that they're in there to expand their military capabilities. I look at it from a different perspective, which I think a lot of people in intelligence are starting to come around to, and that is they're there for the resources. So if you look at the South China Sea and you look at why they're there, you've got to understand oil and the fisheries, you know, especially with China consuming 25 percent of the world's fish catch. That seems almost more problematic because other countries want the resources there as well. Yeah, you've got some competition there. Yeah, I mean, down the road, I mean, I have a question here, but we can talk, it was more novel related. We can talk about that here, but I'll bring it up to the top of something you actually point out in this novel is that we now have some, some somewhat strange bedfellows. And mm-hmm. East Asia, I mean, former enemies, so like Vietnamese, Vietnamese and then yeah. countries you wouldn't normally think of as being key intelligence allies mm-hmm. like Indonesia and mm-hmm. other places. How has this world changed in the last 15 years about all of a sudden we're working very closely with non-traditional allies in the region? Well, we're almost being forced to. You know, I mean, you know, I think one of the things if you look at American history, and I'm certainly not a, a historian by trade, um, but when you take a look at, you know, we're always focused on one or two threats. And so all of the other things that are going on in the world are secondary. So much of our effort, uh, you know, went into the Soviet Union. If you look at what's happened since 9-11, most of our efforts have been on the counterterrorism front, uh, particularly focused on the Middle East. But now that you've got potential flashpoints like the South China Sea, you know, we're going to have to start partnering with countries like Vietnam. Vietnam is a claimant to the South China Sea. Now, I'm not advocating that we go in there and solve the problem for the claimants. Uh, As long as we focus on our freedom of navigation, I'm happy. Um, But we will have to work with them and and, and share intel, whereas 20 or 30 years ago, they were an adversary. So it's really interesting how the world is developing. Well, it's just the changing dynamics because Vietnam's biggest sugar daddy during the whole decades was China. Yes. Right? It wasn't the Soviets, it was right. China and all of a sudden it ended up making a lot of people nervous. Yeah. in that region. Well, it is. And but the thing is too, if you you know, if you look at some articles recently between the Chinese and the Vietnamese, they're now doing joint oil exploration. And so I think what'll 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 happen is is over time, you know, um, their focus on economic resources will probably bring them together yeah. rather than rather than take pulling them apart. So let me ask you some, a couple of broad questions about military intelligence and being mm-hmm. a military intelligence yeah. officer. I've met some great ones mm-hmm. within the military, both when I was in the Army and after, mm-hmm. and some not-so-great ones sure. that yeah. were bitter that they were an MI, they didn't really want to be, yeah. they got branched assigned, they wanted to be an armor officer. Right. You focused on the concept of what it means to be a military officer in the past, military officer in the past. Mm-hmm. You wrote an article in 2000 kind of focusing mm-hmm. on I mean, you said critical tasks. Like, what are mm-hmm. some of the most important things that an intelligence officer in the military can do to be part of the broader kind mm-hmm. of combat apparatus? Yeah. Of, because I always looked at it, even when I was in, as the poor S two or J two getting having to schlep out and give us a briefing. We were bored to death. Sure, um, there's no and, specificity in it, was it? Well, there's no specificity, <laughs> and he always seemed to be an outsider, right? Sure. You know, he. He was jealous of the S3, really wanted to be in mm-hmm. operations, and he was just kind mm-hmm. 
pissed off you had to give the weather report to a bunch right. of Joes. Yeah. It seems now things have become much more integrated. I mean, I'm, I'm a dinosaur when I, I mean, I'm going back to yeah. the 90s in my case. What are some of the key concepts, the key things that military intelligence officers, to give you an idea, we have a lot of listeners mm-hmm. who are an MI themselves, sometimes mm-hmm. they're junior officers, sometimes civilians, yeah. sometimes mm-hmm. there are people who are in grad school thinking about a career or mm-hmm. um, you know, wanting one day to do military intelligence. Mm-hmm. If you had pieces of information or advice to give mm-hmm. about what makes a good military intelligence officer, what would they be? I would say first you have to understand the battle space. You, know, you have to understand how the conditions on the ground impact friendly operations. You know, so it depends on, you know, where you're operating. I would also tell young um, officers or those who are interested in becoming uh, intelligence officers to really pay close attention to the ground um, in both urban and rural areas because that, those, those types of things will impact friendly operations. So one of the things I always try to do when I was a young, young officer a long time ago, I always joke with my students, it was about 10,000 years ago, um, was to visualize the battle space and to be able to articulate that vision to the commander so that he or she, back then, you know, he could make good decisions and create good operational plans that will be success. Um, and, and the other thing, too, is, is that one of the things I learned a long time ago was, you know, always look at the perspective of the trigger puller. So whenever I got information, you know, um, Colonel North gave me some valuable advice many, many years ago when he said the first thing you should ask yourself is who needs to know this, and it's not going to be me, Um, with the emphasis on pushing information down to that soldier. And so I think a lot of times what, what I saw in my career at the tactical level a long time ago was an emphasis to, you know, sort of please the boss, please the staff, maybe the company commanders. Um, but I think those of us who looked at it a little bit different, um, you know, may have been a little bit more successful because our focus was, let's get this information down to the trigger puller, and then we'll worry about the staff as, as things go. So um, that's what I would right. I would recommend to a new officer. Well, that's, look, that's looking great in, in the great direction of the tactical side. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if, what was the difference between tactical intelligence and really the big picture stuff, like yeah. what CIA is doing, because right. not only is what I talk about the differences, but also is it necessary for a lieutenant or even a company commander at the military intelligence level to think big picture also, to understand where they fit within the broad kind of overall military strategy, but even bigger than that, right, the overall grand strategy? I mean, David Petraeus talks about their strategic corporal as somebody that can really shit the bed for you if someone at that level doesn't understand what the big picture is. Mm -hmm. So... I can understand a first lieutenant, you know, a platoon leader, maybe not having the geopolitical knowledge that they should. But mm-hmm. how important is it that they start trying to think that way? Well, I think it's very important. I mean, you know, one of the things, one of the primary differences in, in my judgment between tactical level intelligence and that of strategic intelligence is really understanding the intent of our competitor or our threat. Um, and so, you know, when you're a tactical intelligence officer, you're working on trying to identify the target so that a trigger puller can engage that target and take it out. Um, when you are at the CIA and you are a strategic intelligence officer, what you're trying to do is figure out what is Putin's next move in the Baltics? How, how can we, how can we um, you know, anticipate what he's going to do in the Baltics? And so I think that's one of the primary differences um, between military intelligence and then what we call strategic intelligence. Um, I think it's very important for a young officer to understand uh, the bigger picture because he or she has a big role in it. Right. You know, if you look at some of the, the missteps we've had in, in, in Iraq over the years um, or in Afghanistan, 
um, those incidences that occurred really changed the, the, the picture because everything that we do on the ground in Afghanistan, those Afghans are going to be looking at us going, are these people that we can trust? And so if a young officer understands the big picture of what we're trying to do, we're trying to you know, uh, get rid of the Taliban, we're trying to get rid of al-Qaeda, and we're trying to help the Afghans have a stable working democracy or self-governance in, down the road. And if a young officer understands that, that should guide his or her actions right. on a daily basis. I mean, it goes back to the concept of commander's intent, right? The, the, sure. Which goes back to the Germans in World War II. Yeah. If we, we denazify the idea of the German army in World War II, right. the United States military, especially the army, is completely modeled on the way the it, Germans yeah. take things. The idea yeah. is give somebody a job to do and then get out of their way. Yeah. But it's important to understand what the intent of the mission is. Mm-hmm. Do you think people get lost, especially with the military intelligence side, because it's, it's so heady? It's not like a tanker where it's go kill those guys, take that mm-hmm. territory. Mm-hmm. They get lost all up the chain at some point where they might not see it through to the big picture commander's intent. Mm-hmm. They might just go, well, the brigade commander, care. like, no. Mm-hmm. What, is the, what is the chief of staff of the army thinking? What is the president thinking in this case? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think it's important to understand. I mean, a young officer still needs to really, really be good at his or her job at the tactical level. So, so they need to be spending a lot of time there. Um, but what I would tell a young officer is, hey, look, when you get a chance, you know, in your off-duty hours or if you're overseas somewhere and you're deployed, you know, read some, read some books, you know, whether it be about China, read some books from General Michael Hayden. Get some perspective of the big picture because ultimately those men and women are going to become captains. They're going to be then colonels, right. and they're going to be drafting policy and creating policy and executing policy in places around the world. So if they have a strong foundation early on, it'll make them more successful in the future. We'll have more with Michael in a second, but first let me tell you about the Assassinations podcast. The assassination of President John F. Kennedy by Lee Harvey Oswald changed the course of history. But would things have turned out differently if Oswald wasn't successful in killing the president? Would President Kennedy have served a second term, or would somebody else have tried to assassinate him? The new podcast, Assassins, from the Parcast Network, examines what happens when murder meets public officials. Assassination takes a deep dive into the life of some of the world's most infamous assassins to discover what motivated them to take such drastic measures. Host Bill and Kate examine these assassinations through the lens of both the target and the assassin, asking, did the assassin ultimately achieve his or her underlying objective? And if so, how did it change the world? New episodes come out every week. Check out the three-part episode of John F. Kennedy right now and look for upcoming events on Malcolm X and even pop singer Selena. New episodes come out every Monday. So search and subscribe to Assassinations wherever you listen to podcasts. Again, that's A-S-S-A-S-S-I-N-A-T-I-O-N-S. Or visit podcast.com slash assassinations to start listening now. That's podcast, P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash assassinations to listen now. So you, you had an interesting job that I didn't mention in your bio because I want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. You're the director of the Presidential Emergency Operations Center in the mm-hmm. White House. Now, listeners, listen to the dates. <laughs> From January 2001 until July 2002 under President George W. Bush. So you probably out there picked up on what important date is in the middle of that. Uh, so you're, you were in the White House Operations Center on 9-11. I was a director on 9-11. I was not sitting in the Operations Center. I was actually, I'd just come home uh, because my wife had a stem cell transplant at Walter Reed Army Hospital. So, But yes, I was a director um, at the time of 9-11. So you were dealing with that and your wife at the time as well? Yeah, I was. Yeah, yeah. my, my wife, uh, she unfortunately passed away, but uh, she fought a, a hard fought for four years. Uh, she got stage four breast cancer, was diagnosed immediately in 2000, but uh, she pulled a hard fight and, and survived to 2004. So yeah, I had both those things going on. Um, I will tell you, though, that uh, the men and women who were part of the team really helped me out. Um, 
and they did a marvelous job on 9-11. Um, all I can say is they communicated with me, I communicated with them, and we were prepared to go uh, if something were to happen to the White House. But other than that, I can't really talk about it. But yeah, it was two, right. two, two horrible situations for the nation and, and myself, but got through it, so... Yeah. It's all good. Well, let me talk around it a little bit. I know mm-hmm. you can only say so much. Yeah. This is almost going to sound like a, you know, the sideline reporter at a football game where the the coach has just led a team that got annihilated. And how do you feel? Right? Mm-hmm. They want to say horrible. Why are you asking mm-hmm. me how I feel? How insane was it? Uh, I mean, how how any how? Obviously, you were prepared. You were trained for something like this. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have I mean, in intelligence. Not having information is stressful. It's right. the worst thing we can possibly find ourselves mm-hmm. in is lack of information. And there's a mm-hmm. lot of lack of information that day. So how how crazy was it to try to understand what the world was looking at and the threats to the White House on that day? Oh, it was crazy. I mean, there, 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 was, there was a little bit of chaos in terms of trying to figure out what was going on. I mean, you've seen the videos mm-hmm. of people running out of the White House. Um, and so I don't want to get into, you know, who did what well or, or why not. But sure, there was some confusion. Absolutely. Um, you know, when you look at the, the folks that stayed in the White House, you know, Vice President Cheney and some other members of, uh, of the cabinet, of the Bush cabinet, um, lots of confusion. You know, there are lots of calls back and forth from, from New York and, and, and the senior staff. And, and really, uh, you know, we didn't really know what was going on until we finally got all the aircraft down on the ground. Because, so they really weren't supposed to stay there. I don't know if we can get into this. I mean, the, the idea was to go to Raven Rock if that's possibly good, you know. Um, and you're smiling at me because you can only say so much. Um, but I mean, there, there's been a lot of really interesting articles, and one, the Politico one, if, if, if you haven't read it about like the TikTok from that day, is extraordinary mm-hmm. about the confusion because this is not this was not the game plan, right? The mm-hmm. idea was the the continuity of government plan was written during thinking about a Soviet nuclear attack, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not terrorists running planes into right. buildings. Right? Was it? seamless in that respect it's like you know what this is the same basic threat the white house could be blown up we need to do something about well, it well i mean the, certainly the threats are completely different yeah. you know but i don't think the execution was was any different though i mean there are certain procedures that you follow um there are certain places that you are prepared to go to and establish communications and and establish communications with other assets around the world so i don't think that that in itself was was a problem. I think it was really just how some of the staff, you know, it, you know, particularly after about nine fifteen, nine twenty in the morning, um, were just told to just leave immediately. Some of the non senior folks, right. but I think in terms of our program, our emergency action programs that that, that I was responsible for, uh, I would say that I think we were prepared, and 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 uh, though the threat was different, we were fully prepared to go to multiple locations should something have happened to right. the White House. And we had, we had contingencies in place, and so we were ready to go. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. How 
how much tension was there on 9-12 and 9-13 and 9-14? I mean, a lot of people think of 9-11 as a singular event, like one day, you know, mm. a couple planes, and then kind of everyone moved on. But for the yeah. national intelligence, national security community, the intelligence community, yeah. that was the beginning, not the end, right? That was the beginning of the crazy period because yeah. potential for follow-on attacks and other things like that. How much communication is there with CIA, with the intelligence community about mm-hmm. potential threats. I know that's probably a big part of the job mm-hmm. is finding out what's happening day to day. But there was no business as usual after 9-11, right? No, I don't think yeah. so. I mean, we were devastated like everyone in the nation was. Um, you know, we were shocked. You know, what in the world was going on? And we were on edge for a long period of time. Anytime, anytime we got a, a report uh, in the operations center, in the emergency operations center, or those, those folks in the situation room, we were like, whoa, wait a second, you know, and then we had to calm ourselves down. I mean, that's just kind of the, the mindset right. that we were in. So every little thing. Um, so we were well, prepared. Yeah, I mean, a lot of us, you know, we took 9, 12 and 9, 13 to lick our wounds and try to yeah. figure out the world. But you didn't have an opportunity to do no, that. No, we didn't right? have that opportunity. No, yeah. we had to get back to business. Uh, we had to be prepared for, for whatever contingency was, was coming next. Um, and, um, you know, I think, I think the folks that work for me, um, did a great job. I think most of the people, you know, Secret Service and them did a great job, but it did take us a few days to kind of calm down. I mean, and, uh, and relax a little bit, so to speak, you know, anytime there was, you know, a, a plane was, was off course right. by, by, you know, a couple minutes or, or, you know, not communicating, it was something that we really, uh, got spun up on, but, um, yeah. In many cases, we, and this is not, this is not specific to the job, but to mm-hmm. broader intelligence, mm-hmm. I think we're, we're going to look back and think that we're fortunate that no one else was prepared to take advantage of us during this time. Mm-hmm. How much of the risk was tunnel vision on 9-12 and 9-13 and mm-hmm. 9-14? Because if, if the Norks wanted to do something at the time, mm-hmm. if Iran wanted to play around at the time, mm-hmm. Saddam Hussein stole around if he wanted to do something at the time, this would have been a great opportunity while we're looking, everyone is looking in one yeah. direction. Well, I think all of our adversaries have done that. Yeah. I mean, if you look at what the North Koreans did, um, you know, the first, their first nuclear test. Um, if you look at the, the missile buildup from the Iranians, um, the militarization of the South China Sea, that didn't start just a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, and so I think what's happened is with, with our nation's laser-like focus on the war on terror, global terrorism, sure, we've taken our eye off the ball. Um, and you have a lot of military commanders now talking about our inadequacies and, and not being prepared to fight the Russians and the Chinese. That came out the other day in, 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 a, in a good report. So, yeah, I certainly do. But I think no country took advantage of us more than, than the North Koreans did. They saw that our focus was on the Middle East. It was in Afghanistan, some parts of Africa. And they said, the United States is distracted. We're going to put a lot of more money and resources into our WMD program. And I believe that, that, that they've done that. Um, same thing with the Iranians. Let me ask you about your work at the Citadel. This is a, a department that just stood up relatively recently. It's about a year and a half old or yeah, so. Yeah, it's about a year old. Yeah, yeah about a excited. year old. Yeah. Um, we're seeing some of these popping up around the country, and it's really interesting to mm-hmm. see an academic focus on intelligence policy and intelligence mm-hmm. history. What do you think the importance of these kind of programs are? I mean, I, I, th- this is a softball question to a degree, but mm-hmm. I like talking to people who are in the same field, basically, as mm-hmm. I am, intelligence education. Yeah. And, and you know, what their vision of the, the key importance of these kind of programs? I mean, in, in, in our view, you know, if you look at our department, you know, you look at the professors that we have, and we're focused on multiple learning objectives. But really the one we always focus in on is critical thinking. You know, we're always asking our students, what do you think about this? What is your assessment of this? And more importantly, how did you arrive at that assessment? What is the evidence that you used? And so we spent a lot of time differentiating between opinion 
and, and evidence-based facts. And so that's one of the things we try to do. So I think the value of an intelligence education is good because you, you, we, we tend to look at national security events, but we look at it through the laser you know, vision of, of an intelligence officer, you know, and, and how, do, how do we get those students prepared? And one of the things that we find um, is the best way to prepare them for, uh, you know, this type of field, this type of work, is to get them to critically think and always ask themselves why they came to a conclusion and why they came to an assessment. Um, and we also, I'm a big believer in red teaming. Um, because I think far too often in the intelligence community, um, I've been a little bit critical of this, our assessments are often um, not accurate, I guess is probably the kind word. And I think a lot of that is just because we don't really think like our adversaries right. do. And so that's one of the things I try to do in my classroom and so do, so do my colleagues there at the Citadel. And we try to get them to think like, what, what are the Chinese thinking now? Well, we know that the Chinese look at things in 100-year increments. We look at an election cycle and probably even shorter than that. And so that's the value that we think that intelligence education has is by critically thinking and thinking like our adversaries, which we believe will make our students very good intelligence officers down the road. So. Well, that's something that's been borrowed from the military. I mean, thinking about you know, the op four and trying mm -hmm. to yeah. kind of be, think like Red the team. bad guy, right? Yep. Yep. Um, Technique. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, that's there's whole entire massive centers around the country like NTC and others yeah. that are set up for exactly mm -hmm. that. So I looked up the uh, areas of concentration for the undergraduates, and, and one of them stands out. All the other ones are relatively straightforward. Mm -hmm. There's military intelligence, counterterrorism, business intelligence, general intelligence, and Chinese area studies. Yes. That, I'm like, well, okay. Um, <laughs> why pick the Chinese specifically as the, like, the one regional area, the one specific country that you guys want to focus on? Well, when we, when we put together a program, Dr. Jensen and, and myself and some others, I mean, we looked at where do we see our strategic competitors down the road? And, and also, what infrastructure do we currently have in place? I mean, that was certainly a big, big part of the decision-making progress. But, you know, we have um, a lot of courses in our political science department that focus on the Far East and in China. We have a language-intensive program at the Citadel where a Chinese is offered. So we said, well, what, let's, let's have a Chinese area studies. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just a, a five, five courses, but, you know, that's where, sort of speak, the action is down the road. I mean, there's nobody in the world that can convince me that, that looking out 50 to 100 years that the Chinese are not the, the, the strategic competitor. We can talk all we want about the Iranians right now and their short-range and medium-range ballistic missiles. We can talk about the North Koreans, their inability to, uh, to hit the United States still, at least that's my vision uh, um, or my assessment. But it's really all about the Chinese. And it's not just from a military perspective. It, it, it is political and it's economic. Um, if you look at the investments the Chinese are putting into Africa and into, into South America. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, um, we've always been okay with them and not to worry because they've been a regional power. Yes. Right? They've been kind of, you know, yeah. the East Asia thing. But now they're really branching out. They're, they're starting to kind of sow their wild oats. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're investing heavily in Africa. They're outspending us in Africa. They're investing heavily uh, in some of their... Uh, shipping lanes going into, you know, f through the Indian Ocean. You look at some of the infrastructure and the investments they're making in the Caribbean, and let's look at our home right here in the United States. And so, I mean, they are thinking globally. They want to challenge us. They are competitors. Mm -hmm. um, you know, do I think we're going to go to war with China, conventionally speaking, in the next 50 years? No, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, are we going to continue to be victims of some cyber uh, attacks? and penetration and things like that? The answer is yes. Um, but uh, 
when we look at the Russians, when we look at the Iranians, they are all threats and competitors as well, but I look at them more at the regional level. There's only one that can, that can challenge us globally, and that's, that's the Chinese, and, part, and mostly because of their economy. Right. If you put on your, your big strategic vision intelligence analyst hat, mm -hmm. is your warning sign that there might be a military problem coming forward, the, the buildup of the plan, the Chinese Navy? Is that, that, to me, I mean, you can't challenge us globally. And, I mean, I'm, this is not just thinking modern day. This is looking back at World War I and World War II and the idea that the great power competitions really focused on navies clashing places, yeah. not necessarily armies. Mm -hmm. And the Chinese could build 100,000 amphibious boats, but they can't get them across the Pacific because the Nimitz are now Ford-class carriers. <laughs> that boop, 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 pick them off one by one. Right. But if China churns out five or ten carriers in the next 15 years. Well, they won't because they think carriers are obsolete, which is a whole other issue. But well, they're actually, well, actually, they, they're going to have they about, got a couple. Yeah, they've yeah. got a couple right now, and then the, the plan is to have five of them by 2030. Um, but you're right. I mean, I think they're thinking beyond that. I think, you, I think you, you, you know, you're absolutely correct in that regard. They're thinking beyond that. And so with this, you know, this, this area denial that I mentioned earlier on, um, they know that in order to be a global power, they've got to project military forces globally. Well, they have now a base in Djibouti, as many, mm -hmm. as many in your audience already know. Um, they're looking to add more bases in Africa. I'll bet you within 10 or 15 years, they'll be operating in South America. Um, they've just done some leasing, by the way, uh, for a, uh, a space launch facility in Argentina, by the way. Um, and so they've got to have a Navy to project that power. So with five carriers, they're, they're getting closer. You know, the one, the one of the things, though, that I think a lot of analysts don't understand or, or I disagree with their assessment is, is they think that the Chinese Navy it, it will be on par with the United States Navy in the next five or six years just because their Navy is now bigger than ours. And I disagree with that. I mean, we have tech superiority. I mean, and we will continue to retain tech superiority for at least 10 or 15 years. There's no doubt about it in my mind. They make strides. They can hack into certain systems. Then we make strides and we counter. And I believe for the foreseeable future, they'll continue to play catch up. But I do believe once they get five carriers, um, just like as we have been using our carriers for the last 50, 60 years for power projection, um, not just military, but obviously for our diplomatic uh, and some other efforts that we have, they're going to be doing that with their carriers. Um, I don't think they're building carriers just so they can dominate the South China Sea and the East China Sea. Right. They're, they're building carriers that can operate in the Atlantic. Um, right. You don't need a carrier when you have all these air bases that you've built in the last five years. That's a great point. That's China absolutely sea. a great point. And, and yeah. they've got air bases in the South China yeah. Sea. They're working on long-range bombers. Um, as you know, and as your audience I, I'm sure knows, I mean, this, this is a country that has over 100 nuclear warheads at this point in time. They're developing anti-satellite technology. They're no slouch. I right. mean, they, 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 would, they would be a difficult fight, but I, I, I have no doubt that, that we would win any conventional uh, combat situation in, in the Pacific. Well, you brought up a lot of technology in the last uh, couple minutes, which is a great segue into your book, yeah. uh, Into the Shadows Assassination Corps. Uh, we'll get to the specifics in a second, but let me ask you, this is now your second novel, and you're mm -hmm. either close to or already finished with a third or, yeah, yeah, yeah I am, year. and I'm actually, I've, I've started another one. <laughs> so number four, yes, all right. Yes, um, so you've already mentioned Tom Clancy right off the top. That was actually one of my questions, because Clancy seems to be the most, if you look at, talk to other novelists where you're like, oh, you, you want to be John LeCrae, or somebody else like, oh, you, you want to be Ian Fleming. 
there's a lot of Clancy in this, right? I mean, it kind of is, is, is that what inspired you to want to write novels? Yeah, partly so. Um, you know, I mean, I, I like the way Clancy infused technology. You know, a lot of it was military, obviously. Mm. And so I've, I've, I've tried to adapt some of that in my own style. But yeah, I'd be lying to you. I mean, I, I've said this in other interviews and, and to other people before and other audiences. You know, I mean, Clancy was an inspiration. I have to admit it. I'm not going to say it wasn't when right. I was a teenager. I loved to hunt for Red October. And so when I decided to, to try to give this a shot to write, um, I had him in my mind, and, and I think part of that is, um, particularly this, the fourth one I've just started, as crazy as that sound, that's going to be to really honor him and his legacy, um, so I'm going to put a lot of, lot of effort into that one. Um, but for me, it's also just my own personality. You know, I'm a big believer in tech and, and understanding how technology works and how technology changes the way we view the world. How do, right. we, how do we, you know, view our adversaries? And so that's why I focus a lot on technology in the books, too. It might be one of the first novels that have the term Massent in it, which was, you know, made yeah, me smile. Like, yes! Oh, uh, <laughs> hopefully you and some of the, yes. the folks in your audience, measurements and signatures. Yes, yes five sir. other people are going to think it's interesting. No, oh, but, I hope so. Um, <laughs> So there, there, are, there are obviously many people in the intelligence community focusing on what we talked about on Chinese politics, economics, mm-hmm. leadership. Your character, your main character, is really mm-hmm. focusing on more tactical stuff or also big picture technology. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems to be kind of down your alley, right? I mean, how mm-hmm. much, I guess the question here in this case is, how much is this character based on you, right? Clint, <laughs> Jack Ryan was who Tom Clancy wanted to be. Right. But Tom Clancy wasn't a career military intelligence officer; right. didn't have the background. So, sure. is this a is this a Michael Brady surrogate? You know, <laughs> putting in a little bit. You know? No, it's just a figment yeah. of my imagination, Vince. No, I mean, no, no, no. It's uh, it's you know, it's a combination of many things. I mean, I think I think you, you expressed it correctly. I mean, yes, he's looking for some tactical information. But keep in mind, I mean, there is a strategic element to that, and that is, you know, why was this launch? You know, what happened? What's the what's the intent right. behind it? And so, um, but yeah, there's, I guess there's a little bit in there of me, but it's just, uh, I was talking to an author recently. I said, you know, I just let the characters take me and I've let Michael Brennan take me where Michael Brennan's going to go. Right. And, um, but it's mostly made up. So. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you, the, your storyline is, is, you know, the rip off law and order. It's ripped from the headlines, right? The <laughs> idea of ASAT technology yeah. and, you know, technological, uh, intelligence focused on capabilities and mm-hmm. future capabilities. Yeah. So I want to ask you about real versus fantasy world, because you use several real-life people in this novel, leadership Mm -hmm. of certain places, and then some just so slightly tweaked. (laughs) I mean, your director of national intelligence is Stephen Coates. Correct. Um, yes. So what? what was I, and I just uh, met Director Coates a few months ago. He's down at the Citadel and talked to us and gave gave uh, some some of his time. So he's a, he's a good man. So. So I'm wondering where, what, from a writing a novel perspective, like where did you make those decisions? Because there are a lot of novelists who will put something modern day, but will change the names of presidents or change yeah. the names of everything else. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, th- I think if your audience were to were to were to check out the book or even the first one, I mean, I've I've tried to make my books compelling, uh, modern. Um, and as realistic as possible. And I think that starts at least with the settings and then some of the principal characters like the president. So President Trump is in book two. Um, president Obama was in book one because that was focused mostly in 2014. But, you know, when, I, when, I, when, you, when, you, when you add in these other names, you know, I throw those in there just to, you know, I didn't want it to be direct because... I'm never going to say anything negative or positive about the president in any of these books. I'm just, I'm, I'll give some perspectives right. and how I think they might communicate. And, you know, if you see, uh, you know, when you saw it, when you read the book, you know, you saw President Trump have, have quite a bit of dialogue in the situation. Right. Um, 
but I never uh, wrote anything that might be disparaging or negative or anything like that. I, I kept that, you know, kept that out of it. But then some other characters, you know, our, our national security right. advisor and some other folks, I made those close to it because there were some flaws that they had. So Yo, what's interesting wanna... is your, your unique background it looks like from reading this that it helped you a lot because you obviously have the experience as an intelligence officer mm -hmm. so you can write kind of the the day-to-day, -day, yeah. but also looking at like White House inner office stuff as well, kind of like how the leadership would react and even giving people dialogue. Mm -hmm. You're not just making up out of thin air. You've got some background to understand how this mm -hmm. relationship works. Yeah, I mean, I was I was very fortunate to, to 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 sit in on some things, you know, and hear and hear some of these policymakers talk. And so, you know, one of the things I did when I started this project with Book One and now Assassination Court Book Two is I wanted to make it interesting but believable and realistic. And is this how a president would really speak in a situation room? I mean, is it is it all you know? Um, is it all bluster, you know? Uh, but but I've found that um, presidents and senior policymakers are very straight and to the point, and that's how some of that dialogue is built right. around the Situation Room um, when the president is speaking, and and how Oliver Tanner briefs him, who's one of our our characters. You know, very short, to the point, direct, answer the questions, and, and not not a lot of Hollywood, you know. <laughs> Well, and I think, I mean, even going on there. Yeah, I mean, I think even those that might read this might think that you almost overprotect Donald Trump in this case. But all indications are that when the serious stuff is being discussed, mm -hmm. that there's serious conversations and not necessarily what you see yeah. either from his Twitter feed or yeah. from the kind of the caricature of yeah. it that's done. I mean, I, and that's true for Obama also mm -hmm. of. A lot of people got on him because he was such a kind of deep thinker. Yeah. And, I, and some people even use that derogatorily, the idea yeah. of he just thought too much, right? He didn't act. Yeah, he was slow. Pondered slow and pondered react. and yeah. pondered. Mm -hmm. But when the rubber hits the road in these situation rooms, I mean, look, the most characterized president, certainly in our lifetimes, is George W. Bush, mm -hmm. right? The bumbling mm -hmm. Texan and all yeah. that, and that, the yeah. dumb guy. But every indication is on 9-11 – I mean, that's when, when the, the, the shit hits the fan yeah, yeah. is when you see kind of serious stuff come yeah. out of these people. Yeah, President Bush was, was fantastic, uh, first-rate leader. Uh, there's no doubt about it. It's been said probably 100 times, and I've got nothing else to add on yeah. that. But, yeah, I mean, you make a great point. I mean, look, you know, one of the things I pride myself as a professor is when I teach my classes to my students, they don't know if I'm a Republican or a Democrat. Um, you know, as an intel officer, you got to check that at the door, you know, and so I, I, I kind of that that goes into my writing. So when I write about President Trump, I may or may not agree with a decision that he's made or I may or may not agree with uh, something he said on Twitter. But who am I, you know, to challenge that? I'm a, I'm a fiction writer. I'm a professor. And so I'm going to portray the president how I think a president would be portrayed in a real situation in the Situation Room. Uh, and let other people, right. you know, support him or, well, or challenge you, him. Whether you like it that's, or not, yeah. uh, he's the decision maker, That's right? exactly I mean, that's right. the idea is that, you know, yeah. he's the one that's going to make the final, especially when you're talking about military operations yeah. or intelligence operations, you know, you can be a Republican and Democrat, a pro-Trump or anti-Trump, but that's he is exactly going right. to be making the final decision. Yeah, yeah, and I just yeah. wanted to portray him. In, in several of those scenes and, in, 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 you know, what type of questions, you know, he, he, would, he would likely ask. You know, how long are these briefings? Those briefings are short. That's yeah. how most briefings are. Yeah. And, um, and so I didn't want to come across as portraying and being pro-Trump or negative Trump. Um, there's enough divisiveness over that right. in the country, far be it from me to, to talk about it. I just stick to the story and, and, and let, the characters to, let the characters go. One thing that some readers may find frustrating about this book, but I loved the fact mm -hmm. 
But I think you do a really good job in illustrating the complexity of the region. Mm-hmm. Because it's, this is not as straightforward. Anyone who likes the straightforwardness mm-hmm. of the Cold War mm-hmm. would be pulling their hair out because of how complex the East Asian region is. Mm-hmm. And, and some alliances aren't necessarily as tight as we may assume Correct. in real life. And there, there's a lot of real life misunderstanding about this, like mm-hmm. China reigning North Korea. It's like, well... Hell yeah, it doesn't work that way. Right, it doesn't necessarily work that way. And they you have kind their of, own self-interest. You, you highlight a lot of that kind of the, the PRC-DPRK relationship in, Thank you. in the book really well. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you talk a little, either through the book or through the real world, about the complexity of that relationship? Because... It's it's not as straightforward as people think. Yeah, it's not. I mean, I, the best thing I can say is is that you know usually when people think of the Chinese North Korean relationship, you think of Big Brother. Yep. You got Little Brother. You know, it goes back to you know the Korean War, this strategic buffer, which I call nonsense at this point in time. Uh, the conventional wisdom, and I still hear hear pundits talking about this on television, is, is that the, that North Korea provides the strategic buffer from ground forces from the United States. Thirty years ago, I would have bought it. You know, and I don't buy it anymore. I don't think they look at that at that, that at all. Um, I think Kim Jong Un is becoming more hard, more difficult to, to rein in, if, especially if you're looking at it from a Chinese perspective. Um, they have leverage over North Koreans. About 80% of the North Korean economy is, is completely dependent on the Chinese. Um, but now that you've got a new leader with Kim Jong Un, um, he seems to be fairly brash. He's got a lot of confidence, and he's also sitting on nuclear warheads. Now. As I've written before, do I think he has the ability to hit the United States with an intercontinental ballistic missile? The answer is no. If you look at the telemetry data, if you look at some of the data that's come out, I don't think he can do it. But um, the fact is is that he has conducted six nuclear tests, so we know he's got the capability to do it. And so he's, 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 the Chinese are looking at him much more seriously than they would right. have with, say, his father or his grandfather. But it's very complex. Um, <clears throat> but I don't, I don't think the Chinese need the North Koreans as much as they used to. Well, he may not be able to hit a, you know Hawaii or, or L.A., but he but can he hit can Tokyo hit, Yep, he can certainly Jakarta. hit Seoul, uh, you know, Guam. Yeah, yep. or, yes, absolutely. Yeah, Guam. You're absolutely right. Yeah, 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 Guam. Who cares about Guam? Well, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that was my one day. Yeah, don't, don't, yeah, that was I my think one some of the folks day. in the Navy yeah, they might, yeah, they, they might have some issues with that. Okinawa, too, right? <laughs> oh, God, don't get... <laughs> you're going to get us in trouble, Vince. I always get myself in trouble. Um so let me wrap this up by asking you. I ask this question a lot of novelists because mainly because I'm interested in it. Because I thought if I, I'm never going to write a novel, but if I did, and it was something overseas, even though I visited lots and lots and lots of countries, either through the army or otherwise, I'd have a hard time describing the setting. Mm-hmm. So a lot of this is set in places like Jakarta and others. Mm-hmm. Did you write what you know, or did you go and research? Did you kind of? I don't have the research funds to yeah. go to Jakarta, Vince. Um, I don't have that. Um, so, no, I mean, most of what I did in the book, because there's so many different locations, yeah. is just a lot of research and yeah. just reading, you know. I mean, reading blogs for people who are in Jakarta, reading, you know, travel sites, you know, and, and you pick up on some things. Man, it smells in parts of yeah. Jakarta. We don't think that here in the West, but we do. So, no, I mean, I, uh, I'm with a smaller publisher with Waldorf Publishing. Um, you know, they support me 100%, but... Um, I don't get a lot of travel money at this point in time in my career, so hopefully that'll change down the road. <laughs> right, exactly. So how do, how do people find this book? Oh, you can find it uh, in all the retail outlets. They can find it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books a Million, Target, I mean, anywhere um, that they sell books. Um, if it's not in, in, in the store at the time, they can order it. Um, it's found in most independent bookstores as well. 
Uh, it's, found, it's been uh, distributed overseas. And so basically any major retail outlet, they'll have the ability to, to just pull up the title and the name, and they'll, they'll be able to order it. And if they've read if they the first two it. and can't wait for the third one, when's, when's the scheduled date well, for the that, tentative, next year? Yeah, the tentative date is November 1st, 2019. Okay. And um, so we're hoping to get that. This one will be a reunion, of, so to speak, of, uh, of Michael Brennan and one of the characters in book one. Um, and it'll focus on a plot surrounding uh, Hezbollah. Okay. So, based on what's going on in the news, it'll probably be timely again. So, unfortunately, right. So, yeah, November first, two thousand nineteen. So, the book that is out now is Into the Shadows: Assassination Corps. The author is Michael Brady. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here today on Spycast. Vince, thank you so much. It was an honor and privilege. Thank you very much. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution to help support future educational programming. Please visit spymuseum.org and click on our donate now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.